0: please join me in welcoming Professor Murray back to VA for this evening.
1: So, Professor Murray, it's so wonderful to have you um, here um, joining us for this important symposium. I had the privilege of reading an article on Dobbs and Democracy that is under submission for you Law Review editors out there, an extremely um, incisive, important piece about um, the opinion and its relationship with democracy, which is kind of perfect in thinking about this particular symposium but it's not the first time you've written about uh, reproductive autonomy um, or abortion rights. Um, You have an extensive line of scholarship, and and some of the scholarship in the past, in a sense, predicted the outcome in Dobbs. Um, Was there anything particularly surprising about the opinion in light of your thoughts about it in the past?
0: So just for reference, um, I think I said as early as 2018 that the Supreme Court's composition would change. And with its change in personnel, there would be a majority, um, a decisive majority, to overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And at the time, I think a lot of people said I was being hyperbolic and overwrought. hysterical woman, and it turns out I'm right. Um, And and this is not like a fight with my husband. I take no pleasure in being right here. Um, So was I surprised by the decision? I wasn't surprised by the outcome. I was surprised by the fact of the leak, and at, when the formal opinion came out, I was surprised that there wasn't a lot of substantive changes, uh, which you know I think is quite interesting. One of the things the Supreme Court likes to tell us is that they exchange gra- drafts, and the exchange of drafts forces them to refine their <coughs> arguments, maybe change their positions, make things better, but. This draft opinion was substantially the same as what actually was announced. It was almost as though Justice Alito was like, You're perfect, no notes. Like, <laughs> you're, you're done. Um, so, so that was a surprising. Also surprising, um, especially in light of the leak. Uh, with the leak, we only got the draft majority opinion, we didn't get any of the other opinions. And I thought Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion was actually very interesting in terms of its effort to really cleave to a kind of sense of moderation. Like This is only a state-by-state settlement. It does not impair other rights. It does not affect interstate travel for reproductive rights. I'm not sure he can necessarily make that claim, given that the right to travel, like the right to an abortion, is also unenumerated. Um, but you know, I think he was very much trying to stake out a moderate position for this opinion, to trim back, I think, some of the extremities of the majority opinion. I think Justice Thomas sort of came in, and you know, as a response perhaps to the moderation that Justice Kavanaugh was seeking, was sort of like, hold my beer. Um, <laughs> like, Let's go a little further. And I actually was not even just surprised by that opinion; I welcomed that concurring opinion because, again, in addition to saying that the court would likely overrule Roe and Casey, I'd also predicted that any line of reasoning that would topple Roe and Casey would also imperil other. Substantive rights in that line of cases, and again, hysterical woman again talking, you know, talking and driving while, while being hysterical. <laughs> right, right, right. And I was really glad for that opinion because he very explicitly invites further consideration of an entire line of substantive due process decisions. And so I was glad to have that on the table. But you know, beyond that, I wasn't particularly surprised. I mean, the tone of the opinion was what I expected. The logic of it, I think, was very much in keeping. One thing I did predict was perhaps they might sort of take a line that overruling Roe and Casey was necessary to pursue racial justice. This was a line of argument that I pursued in the article that was mentioned in Harvard. That wasn't necessary, they didn't do that. Although there is a very interesting footnote in the opinion, footnote 41, that speaks about this Association of abortion with eugenics. And I think that could be laying a foundation for something else, possibly contraception, possibly fetal personhood going forward.
1: Well, let's continue with kind of the topic of the symposium. And, you know, the topic of the symposium is Dobbs and democracy. And Justice Samuel Alito made what many found to be a persuasive case about abortion and democracy. Quoting the justice, he argued it was time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. He notes that women now make up a majority of the voters in the United States, which presumably leaves them well positioned to defend their interests in democratic politics. And like every other issue in democratic politics, those who support and oppose abortion should have the burden of persuading others to support their views instead of asking courts to intervene and stop the operation of democratic politics. Does Justice Alito have it right? And if not, why not? And ultimately, what do you think about Justice Lido's vision of democratic deliberation as a better alternative to judicial rights protection?
0: So I actually, I think it's a really interesting argument. Um, and the degree to which it relies on this idea of democratic deliberation is also really profound. It's almost, I mean, if you read John Hart Ely, it is an alien kind of view, right? This idea that judicial review is only legitimate if it is democracy enhancing, right? And so on this account, Overruling Roe and Casey, acts that might be viewed as acts of judicial overreach and activism are suddenly now recast as democracy enhancing because it's restoring democratic deliberation that was otherwise disrupted when the court decided Roe in 1973 and affirmed it in Casey in 1992. Um, In the paper that we've submitted, Kate Shaw and I trace the origins of that democratic deliberation argument. And Justice Alito presents it as always attending Roe, this idea that Roe always was understood to disrupt democratic deliberation. That's not true. Um, Justice Byron White mentions it in the dissent to Doe versus Bolton, which is one of the companion cases to Roe. And then he sort of backs away from it. Like no one else is talking about this idea of disrupted deliberation. Everyone is talking about the idea that Roe has perhaps created a fundamental right out of whole cloth. And that's really the critique of Roe that takes root in 1973, that the court has gotten fundamental rights incorrect. It takes another 10 years for this democratic deliberation argument to really coalesce. And it does so around a lot of different developments in society, changes on the court and in the court's personnel, but also changes in movement politics. So one of the things that happens in the intervening period between 1973 and 1981, when it begins to emerge again, is that the pro-life movement has been thwarted in its efforts to have a constitutional amendment that would basically abolish abortion. And so they changed tactics and begin a different set of strategies and the incremental chipping away at reproductive rights and the abortion rights specifically, and a broader movement to dismantle Roe, to call into question Roe. And part of that movement really depends on blunting the stare decisis effect of Roe, like the deference that a precedent would be owed. that's when this democratic deliberation argument really comes to the fore again. It gets resurrected. And it becomes a really potent way to discuss whether or not this embattled decision is owed deference. And they talk about it as thwarting the will of the people, like the court imposing its will on the people. But that argument had not been made mm-hmm. as forcefully in 1973. One person was talking about it, and he sort of backs away from it very quickly. Um, so, so that by itself is interesting. Um, is Justice Alito, as he relies on it, to frame the court as vindicating the people? Um, you know, Is his vision of democracy one that's sound? Uh, I think it depends on what you imagine democracy doing. I think it's a very myopic vision of democracy. It's one that understands democratic deliberation to occur principally in state legislatures. Um, that might not be surprising. Um, I, I think it is worthwhile noting that state legislatures right now due to gerrymandering and a host of other concerns are probably the least representatives of our institutions. Um, the opinion also doesn't take account of other constitutional actors that might be involved in the process of democratic deliberation. So there's no discussion of state level executive officers like attorneys generals or governors. Um, there's no discussion of state court judges who might also weigh in on the question of reproductive rights. There's no discussion of direct democracy, which we've also seen play a really important role in the post-Dobbs landscape. It also understands the, pro- the process of democratic deliberation to work only in one direction, the further restriction of abortion rights, as opposed to the prospect of liberalizing abortion rights, which also is surprising When you take account of the fact that one of the arguments that has been made is that there was this democratic deliberation going on and people were persuading people and sometimes they were right and sometimes they were wrong. This only understands it leading to less as opposed to more and very different from Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence which explicitly understands that it could move in either direction. Uh, It's understanding of political power I think is also quite myopic. Um, Political power is reducible in Justice Alito's telling to either voting or possibly holding office without really taking into account the kinds of impediments that might present to those seeking to vote. Like for women who are the principal caregivers in most families, going to vote can be an ordeal if you have young children, um, if you work, um, if you work odd hours, like we've seen all of this. Holding office might also be difficult if you are the principal caregiver for young children. and so. If that is what political power looks like, I'm not sure that women exercise it in quite the same way as others. And if we think about other forms of political power, other metrics like campaign contributions or presence in Congress or state legislatures or state houses, I think the picture of women's political power <coughs> looks flatter than perhaps the opinion gives credit for. So, you know, that's. On its face, I think, you know, it is a rosy picture of democracy he paints. I don't know if it aligns exactly with what it looks like on the ground. And I also don't know that the methodology that undergirds this interest in democracy, this history and tradition interpretive method is itself democratic in that it binds our understanding of the Constitution and constitutional rights to an understanding of the Constitution that was in place when many people could not deliberate about the Constitution and could not deliberate about laws passed in furtherance of constitutional guarantees. And so to the extent the whole opinion depends on that, I'm not sure it is pro-democratic either. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And and just to follow up on that point, um, Justice Leto made the point that over 50% of the voters are women, but if you look at who comprises state legislatures, in well, and In Mississippi,
0: particularly. In
1: uh, Mississippi, in particular, state legislatures, you're looking at you know numbers around 30%. And the reason is because of the barriers um, to office holding that exist. And also, if you look to who are the contributors and donors to campaigns, there's also disproportionality with respect to who's represented there. But let me just kind of turn to a question about judicial role. A point that Justice Alito made in Dobbs was that the right to abortion is nowhere contained in the Constitution. The same could be said about the right to reproductive autonomy, if you wanted to sort of generalize how Executive privilege. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or the right to privacy, <laughs> right? I'm just saying, yeah, right, we're right, a right, lot right. about executive privilege for a long time. So if a right is not enumerated in the Constitution, what is the case that it should be considered a right entitled to judicial protection under the, under the Constitution?
0: So again, this is... When I talk with folks about who disagree with me about um, this question, that is usually what they say. This is not an enumerated right. It's not like the Bill of Rights guarantees. This is the court making up rights. And I think a lot of progressives actually do concede this. Like, yes, it's an unenumerated right. I don't know that I'm ready to concede that, right? Um, the 14th Amendment speaks of liberty. It was drafted in the wake of the American Civil War, where the principal question was, how are we going to move to a post-enslavement society? And so when the drafters of the 14th Amendment were constructing this article, they were thinking explicitly about what separated freedom from enslavement. Like, what is liberty versus what is enslavement? And when they thought about liberty, it was in juxtaposition to slavery, right? So what is slavery? Well, it is not only the lack of control of your labor It's also the lack of control over your reproductive labor. And to be very clear, the sexual exploitation of enslaved women was endemic and everyone knew about it. Uncle Tom's Cabin is the most popular book of the age and it discusses in explicit terms the kind of sexual predation to which enslaved women were subject. Everyone knew this. What else doesn't happen in slavery? You don't have control over your family. Your children can be sold away from you. You can't get into recognized civil marriages. That's why the understanding of liberty responds to this idea of a right to marriage, a right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, and perhaps even a right to reproductive autonomy. So to start from the premise that because this isn't enumerated, I don't think that's true. I think it is enumerated. I think it's right there in liberty, and the understanding of liberty was capacious enough and indeed was explicitly contemplating these sorts of things. Now, If you disagree with that, I don't know why you would, but if you do,
1: (laughs) and then the question
0: is just unenumerated versus enumerated, well, again, that comes back to this question like, okay, who enumerates and who gets to participate in the project of identifying and enumerating rights? The constitution as originally drafted says precious little about individual rights. There's only the ex post facto clause and the clause preventing bills of attainder. And then there's the Bill of Rights Amendment that are passed as a condition of ratifying the Constitution itself. Not everyone is involved in that project of drafting the Bill of Rights. And not everyone is involved in the project of drafting the Reconstruction Amendments. The 19th Amendment is hard fought and hard won, and it only speaks to voting. But people argue that it's actually meant to encompass more. The point is, though, not everyone is involved in those moments of democratic deliberation. And the judicial role that Dobbs contemplates for the court is only in vindicating those rights that they can see, that they can see with this textual commitment, with this history and tradition, a history and tradition that is necessarily bound to moments of profound democratic deficit. So if that's the judicial role, What does it mean for other aspects of the judicial role? I mean, if you take Ely seriously, Ely says that judicial review is legitimate when it is democracy-enhancing, when it's enhancing the prospect of political participation, when it's leaving open the avenues of political participation, and when it is vindicating the rights of discrete and insular minorities who otherwise could not press their interests in majoritarian politics. That part of it is entirely absent if you're wedded to this idea of enumeration and history and tradition as your understanding of what the Constitution protects?
1: Well, I'm going to work start from the premise that the court, where the court is, let's start where the court is in terms of not recognizing um, the right to abortion as an enumerated right contained within liberty um, and, you know, accounting for the persuasive case that you've made. And I'm trying to think about the court's methodology. You've spoken about the history and tradition methodology a couple times in your comments. And it's a question of, well, if there are unenumerated rights, how should they be derived? And I think that the court is willing to acknowledge that there are unenumerated rights in certain respects, right? I think that they're willing to acknowledge, you know, perhaps parental rights that are set forth in early opinions. Um, Maybe they're willing to acknowledge the right to um, um, opposite-sex marriage, right? Um, Whether that extends to same-sex marriage maybe is a different story. Now, what the court seems to rely on is this history and tradition. And maybe one theory of the history and tradition methodology that supports it is that, you know, this history and tradition represents the accumulated democratic judgments of the people. Now, you acknowledge and recognize this democratic deficit that exists with respect to this history and tradition of past judgments. Now, if that is the case and the methodology is problematic from that perspective, What might be the alternative way to derive these unenumerated rights um, that might be consistent with sort of the court's notion of objective Mm -hmm. determinations versus subjective value judgments?
0: So, I mean, I think that's the question, right? Like, what rights should we acknowledge when they aren't specifically like enumerated in the text? Um, Again, I will hold to my position that I think the liberty. Clause in the Fourteenth Amendment is capacious enough to include a wide range of things, and I think some would argue like that's very Lucknerian of you. Like, you know, <laughs> would freedom of contract mm-hmm. be in there? And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I, like I, I admit, like that is like that's where you could go with that. But I do think it is quite capacious, and I think if you were really formally thinking about this idea of enslavement versus liberty. That may sharpen it a bit, but again, it does admit the possibility. Like if, you know, one of the things that separates the enslaved from those who are free, it is the capacity to control your own labor. What does that mean? Like does that mean you can't have maximum hours laws or minimum wage laws? I don't know. That's a different question entirely. That may be too broadly drawn. But I want to first, like my position is I think the Liberty Clause could cover a lot of this. Outside of the Liberty Clause, like what non-enumerated principles like might undergird rights that are not explicit in the text of the Constitution. Um, I think Robert Post and Riva Siegel talk a lot about a set of common American values, and that might guide us. I think that's that's harder to come by at a time of such intense division and polarization, trying to identify a set of principles that we all agree on, I think, may be more elusive. I think one thing, though, that we do agree on is this idea of a democracy that is fully participatory, right? I mean, not maybe not everyone agrees that it should be a pluralistic democracy or a multi-faith or a multi-ethnic democracy. I mean, maybe people have different views of that, but that it should be one in which everyone has an opportunity to participate. And with that in mind, I mean, I, I think I am of the view that the court's role should be to enhance that, to facilitate that as opposed to impeding it. And I think right now what concerns me is the court understanding itself to work in favor of democracy is a very limited vision and a selective and itinerant vision, right? So you know, the court understands itself to be facilitating democracy by withdrawing reproductive rights or by allowing voter referenda that make it harder for minorities to press for race-conscious admissions, for example. This is the Schwede decision. I mean, like there are all of these ways in which democracy is what we want, but it's usually in a way that allows the majority to override the minority in really like profound ways. And so I think I'm, I'm not opposed to the idea of the court facilitating democracy. I just wish it weren't so selective.
1: Let's think about it from the perspective of the fetus and the right to life movement has been focused on protecting the fetus. And what about potential life? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't there be space and opportunity to protect the fetus or potential life?
0: I think this is, again, I will just start, like I was raised in a faith tradition. I continue to be in a faith tradition. I understand that this is a really complicated question. I also think it's why if it's a complicated question because of the nature of fetal personhood or the potentiality of life, it cannot be the case that Dobbs is the end of this. right? You can't, if you believe in the potentiality of life, you can't be okay with California allowing abortion and some other state not. Like, there's a moral absolutism to that. And so this isn't the end. So I'll just say that about where we're going after Dobbs. But I do believe that it is an absolutely acceptable position to have. And I think one of the things that concerns me is that in this country, at least, the interest in a pro-life sensibility is nested within a neoliberal ethic that does not necessarily admit the other ways in which we might be pro-life. Right. So it seems. And again, I'm happy to be corrected if I'm misunderstanding this, but the interest in potential life begins and ends with the fetus. Um, I hope that perhaps this moment after Dobbs will lead to greater protections for family leave, for paid family leave, um, for pregnant worker protections that respect family choices, um, for the expansion of health care coverage for families, all families, even those who cannot afford it. I hope it will lead to Greater protections for black and brown bodies. I mean, I think if you are pro life, you must ask yourself whether the current state of state violence against certain individuals is acceptable. I haven't seen that thus far. I would like to see it. And so I am especially open to the possibilities that this moment might yield. Like recognizing what has been lost, I hope that there are benefits and possibilities for coalition that can come in the future. And I hope we see that. I genuinely hope that we see that. But I haven't seen it thus far. Instead, we have this concern for potential life that is wedded to this understanding of the family as an independent unit that doesn't receive and should not receive any kind of subsidy from the state.
1: Is there anything you, is there anything, um, you find redeeming about the Dobbs' opinion, right? So you've had critique of Justice Alito. You've had some positive things to say about Justice Kavanaugh, even Justice Thomas's opinion. Um, But just kind of looking at it as a whole, um, what might be, if any, some redeeming features from the Dobbs' majority or concurring opinions in addition to what you might have already said?
0: Well, it certainly fueled my research agenda.
1: <laughs>
0: so it's been a very productive period for me. Um, so thank you, Justice Letho. Appreciate it. Um, again, I do like if you take this interest in potential life, and you know, I, I want to be really clear here. One of the things the opinion is at great pains to make clear is that. It is focused solely on abortion. It tries to distinguish abortion from other potential substantive rights on the ground that they do not destroy a potential life. They're different. Justice Thomas disagrees. Well, he doesn't disagree, but he's like, we can still talk about those two. But the opinion is very clear. Like, this is just about abortion. I hope that that dividing line remains intact. I don't know that it will remain intact. I think we're likely to see other developments. But if that is the case, I would welcome that. Like, I mean, like, Without allowing this to go further, I don't think that the logic of it necessarily has a limiting principle. I mean, like if Roe and Casey are wrong because they disrupted ongoing democratic deliberation of a sensitive and divisive issue, then that would also implicate Obergefell, right? It would implicate Griswold. There are lots of things that would be implicated. So I'm not sure that the majorities. Line drawing is necessarily as principled as they would have it. Um, I think it's. I think we're having a conversation right now about what it means to return things to the state. I, you know, I, I think one of the redeeming things that Dobbs has done is that there actually has been a fair amount of democratic deliberation and people sort of saying like, this isn't what this majority wants, and where it's more attention to. Actual majority preferences across the United States. There's a new polling that was out just this week that shows that in every state in the union, there is a majority that believes that there should be a right to abortion. Like they may disagree about the substance and scope of that right, but they agree that it should be recognized. And that perhaps is a redeeming feature or something that we should, you know, be interested in. Like the idea that we're actually focused on what majorities are thinking about and what they want. But I think there's a lot here that is not redeeming. I mean, like this court has consigned this profound question that affects so many people to the democratic process at a time when its own decisions have actively made the electoral landscape less democratic and less likely to yield true majoritarian outcomes. And so in that sense, you know, it's great that you're interested in majoritarianism now that you've made it harder to have majoritarianism.
1: Yeah, I guess the last question before we turn it over to you to ask questions um, is thinking about, you know, kind of picks up from what you were just saying, what's the end game, right? In the sense that in this draft article that's under submission um, is focused on how Um, Roe was, or how Dobbs was justified um, because Roe, in a sense, disrupted the democratic process that was intended to, that, um, you know, would have, you know, things would have been hashed out through democracy if if Roe didn't disrupt it. Um, You know, how does that... argument carry forward? Um, What might be the end game? It it relates to the question of what other rights might be at risk um, in light of the Dobbs opinion and the logic that's underlying the Dobbs opinion.
0: So I, I think Justice Scalia is the founder of this journal. I think one of my favorite lines of his from an opinion is his dissent in Lawrence where he says that when the court takes sides in the culture war, culture wars. They tend to place themselves on the side of the Knights Templar as opposed to the losers. Um, I think that's probably right, this idea of the court as hero. So one of the things I think you see very profoundly in the Dobbs opinion is this idea of the court as hero vindicating these principles of democratic deliberation. Um, Again, I think if you take the role that democratic deliberation plays in undermining the stare decisis effect that Roe and Casey are owed, you will have big questions about what other decisions will similarly be subject to reconsideration. I think Obergefell is surely one of them. Griswold is likely the other. So I think there's a very real possibility that jurisprudentially stare decisis analysis might be different going forward and and will now perhaps take into account Prospects of disrupted democratic deliberation as part of the calculus. Um, the court is also, I think, positioning itself to vindicate another set of interests. And again, this sort of is, I think, interestingly about the connection between majoritarianism on the one hand and the court's role in protecting discrete and insular minorities on the other hand. One of the texts that the Dobbs opinion cites repeatedly. Um, is John Hart Ely's The Wages of Crying Wolf, Um, not John Hart Ely Democracy and Distrust, which talks extensively about the prospect of democratic deliberation and judicial review as democratic democracy enhancing. Um, It's surprising, in fact, that it doesn't talk as much about democracy and distrust. Um, It spends a lot of time talking about the wages of crying wolf. Um, Mentions that John Hart Ely understood the logic of Roe to be completely wrongheaded, that this was a made-up right um, that that made no pretense of being constitutional law at all. But the other thing that Ely mentions in the Wages of Crying Wolf is how the Roe Court was wrong because it failed to properly weigh the competing interests of women on the one hand and fetuses on the other. And there's this very interesting passage in which Ely says, I recognize that women are less well represented than men in state legislatures. But you know who's never been represented in a state legislature? The fetus. And so there is a rationale, I think, and I think a lot of the opinions nods to fetal life and potential life and the inclusion of footnote 41, which talks about that abortion as eugenics argument that Justice Thomas has husbanded. Um, I think that is laying the foundation for another decision, perhaps not too long in the future, in which this court may recognize the fetus as a discrete and insular minority whose rights must be recognized in order for democracy to be vindicated. And so I think that is the end game. And I and I said earlier, I don't think the state-by-state settlement can be the end, because if you take seriously that position, a state-by-state settlement cannot accommodate that. It has to be something else. And I think this decision brings us to this way station and begins to husband the ground for going further.
1: Well, thank you, Melissa, for this conversation. I wanted to open, message. I don't want an uplifting message. I want to, wait, wait. All right, yeah.